When the prophet Isaiah was called to the ministry, which call we heard in our Old Testament lesson, he was given a vision of God, a vision of God in the heavenly court. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, the heavenly temple. Above the Lord stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, we're told. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one calls to the other. And this is what they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos and he is in the Spirit. And he too is lifted up into that heavenly scene. He sees a door standing open in heaven. And he sees a throne standing in heaven. With one seated on the throne in radiant splendor. Surrounded by the 24 thrones of the elders. And from that throne, there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of it are burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, these four living creatures... Like Isaiah's seraphs, each of them have six wings, and they're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Isaiah and later the Apostle John. Two prophets for whom heaven itself was unveiled. And in both cases, the fiery beings they see are worshiping by celebrating one. That's it. One attribute of God. His holiness. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In heaven, day and night, they never cease to say this. Never. So it's all two-line holiness chants all the time, forever. This is what we would call today a boring, predictable, repetitive liturgy. But these fiery, burning beings are not bored. They're not tired. They don't find this infinite, unending hymn to be monotonous. They don't feel the need to introduce some variation, lest it become rote repetition. 
Like Chesterton said about God summoning the sunrise every morning. It's not monotonous repetition. It's an encore. The same thing is happening here. Each chanted chorus is new. Each chanted chorus is fresh and vital and alive. And each calls forth the next in a never-ending string of encores. This is what a vision of the holy God evokes. Holy, holy, holy. Note this. Note this. In heaven, they are not chanting, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Nor are they chanting, true, true, true is the Lord God Almighty. Or faithful, faithful, faithful. What is supremely, perpetually, eternally praised in heaven is the holiness of God. And the threefold repetition here, holy, 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 is a superlative. It's intended for emphasis. It's a way of highlighting for us the superabundant fullness of holiness which characterizes the triune God. Such is the importance of our theme this morning. And so we will then try to peer into this holiness under three headings. They're there in your bulletin. Holy God, Holy Redeemer, Holy People. Holy God, Holy Redeemer, Holy People. So first then, Holy God. Holiness is really hard to grasp. In one sense, it says everything we need to say about God. Right? Thus, the heavenly worship is condensed into this one theme. Right? We we don't have to read Scripture for long to realize that this holiness has a unique and a privileged place among the attributes J.I. Packer called it the attribute of attributes. All the other attributes are like riffs off of or implications of God's holiness. Language has to be reached for here, right? You find commentators calling it the sum of his attributes or the harmony of all God's perfections or the foundation of his virtues or the one thing which is uniquely representative of his essence. Stephen Charnock says, if any, this attribute has an excellency above all his other perfections. It is, he says, the splendor of every attribute of God. Others have called it the essential glory of the divine nature. The the luster, the varnish of all his excellencies. Edward speaks of holiness as God's very beauty. The point is, there is something fundamental, something pervasive, something singular about this attribute, which seems to qualify all the rest. It has, if you will, if we can speak this way, a kind of preeminence among the attributes, at least as they've been revealed to us. Now, there are a number of ways of looking at this preeminence. For example... 
God's name, God's name is qualified by the adjective holy. So you get holy God, holy Lord, holy one of Israel. God is described with this adjective, holy, more than that of all other adjectives in Scripture combined. It's a unique attribution. And it's important to remember, it is as triune, it is as Father, Son, and Spirit that God is the Holy One. Jesus calls his Father, Holy Father. And and stunningly, John tells us in his gospel that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw Christ. He is the Holy Son of God, conceived in the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of holiness, which anoints Jesus and empowers him for ministry. The spirit which raised him from the dead, that spirit is called the Holy Spirit over a hundred times in Scripture. And so we speak rightly, right? We speak correctly. We speak in a profoundly Christian way when we speak of the Holy Trinity, right? The tradition doesn't say the good Trinity, although, of course, the Trinity is good, or the loving Trinity. The, the, The tradition calls God the Holy Trinity for deep and profound reasons. This one's name is holy. He swears by his holiness. His throne is holy. His angels are holy. His sanctuary is holy. We have a holy mountain, a holy city, a holy people, a holy day, a holy land, holy scripture. I chose the New Testament lesson from the the Christmas story in in the Gospel of Luke because it mentions holy prophets and a holy covenant and living with holiness before God. This is a presence which infuses everything with holiness. In fact, the the first use of holiness is in Exodus 3, where God appears and he speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And this, this strange alien fire, this strange presence requires the removal of Moses' sandals, for now the ground itself is holy. And yet, you may be thinking this, you may be thinking this, and yet, we still haven't defined it. In one sense, it's identical with God himself. Holy is he. The verb is important, right? Psalm 99, holy is he. It's a way of expressing God's godness, his name. Holy is his name. So God doesn't have holiness. He is holy. He is the unique one. But we can say more. We can attempt a definition. The root meaning of the Hebrew word for holy is separation. And we can think about this separation in two ways. Metaphysically, and morally. Metaphysically and morally. Metaphysically just means having to do with the relation between God's being and all other created being. That's all we mean by the word metaphysics. 
having to do with the difference between God's uncreated being and all other being. And here the idea is that God is utterly separate, completely other than we are, infinitely different. Right? We've spoken of this throughout this series. God is in no class. He is a member of no genus. He is incomparable. He dwells in inaccessible light. He lives from and by himself. He is independent. He is utterly, infinitely transcendent above the creation. All the similitudes between creatures and God are immersed in an infinite sea of greater dissimilitude. Thus, Scripture regularly tells us God is lofty or high or the most high or exalted or enthroned on high. Right? It is this loftiness, this enthronement, this transcendence of God which is directly linked to God being holy. You'll notice the two things connected often in scriptures. Here's Psalm 99. It says this, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. There's the transcendence. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So holy means our God is unique. He's unmatched. He's the majestic king. He's high above all. Who is like you, O Lord? They sang at the sea at the Exodus. Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness? So this radical difference, this separation between God and anything else, between the sovereign creator and all creatures, this is what we mean by metaphysical holiness. But we can view God's separation morally as well. Holiness, then, is God's unvarnished, blinding purity. It's God's fiery moral excellence. His infinite hatred of all sin and evil. It's his love, his love of all that is good and excellent. So that holiness is God's ethical perfection. It's his flawless moral grandeur. He is, in the words of Charles Hodge, a 19th century Princetonian, Charles Hodge says, God is absolutely pure, free from all limitation in his moral perfection. And because God is this, you have the prophet Habakkuk, for example, saying, O Lord, You are too pure. Your eyes are too pure even to look on evil. And it's this combination, beloved, this combination of transcendent otherness and moral splendor which makes encountering this God without a mediator something like tasting the raw edge of terror. I mean, you would never know it. But that's what encountering this God without a mediator is. Thus, Isaiah, probably grades out pretty high on the scale of faithful Israelites, is undone. And he cries out, woe is me. And woe is me, W-O-E is not W-H-O-A. It's not woe. It's a little more than I bargained for. This is a traumatic word. To see this God is to die. 
It is to be consumed. And thus the seraphs who are burning with fire cover up their eyes. And the apostle John falls down as if dead. But in the heavenly realm, the heavenly chant continues forever. Day and night, without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They don't lose track of this in heaven. So that's the holy God. Secondly, holy redeemer. God's holiness, this is a beautiful thing, I think. It it does not stay locked up in his own being. His separateness, metaphysical or moral, his separateness does not mean that he doesn't draw near to you to save. After all, he speaks of himself. And this is a critical designation to get the holiness of God right, I think. Often overlooked. He speaks of himself as the Holy One in your midst. The Holy One of Israel or of Jacob. Here's Isaiah 12. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. But so this means that in addition to this, his otherness, this means that holiness is in fact a mode of relating to his creation. It's really important that you get that, right? In addition to his transcendent otherness, holiness is a mode of God's relating to his creation. Thus the Holy One, And this is such good news. The Holy One is our Redeemer, our Savior. You know who grasped this profoundly? Isaiah, the seer who was undone, who saw this terrible holiness. It's Isaiah who repeatedly affirms this. For example, Isaiah 41 says this, Fear not. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. Holiness does not drive God away from us. It defines how he relates to us who are unholy. This is a holiness which draws near. It draws near in judgment and in grace. Now, there's no doubt, as Isaiah found out, as John found out, that it can be traumatic. But this drawing near is saving trauma. It's an undoing which leads to reintegration or to wholeness. Negatively, of course, the holiness destroys. It's destructive of wickedness. But that's because sin attacks our flourishing and our well-being as images of the Holy One. That's why God is implacably opposed to sin, not because he's some cosmic moralist. Put positively, this holy fire purifies, sanctifies, purges, Beautifies. In short, it glorifies the human creature. Thus, the holiness of God is the best news imaginable for us. Because we need to be remade and transfigured. It's gospel. 
And again, it's the triune God who is our holy Savior and Redeemer. It's the God and Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who elects. You see this in Ephesians 1. It says he elects with the goal that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is the end of election. And it's the Son who loves the church, gives himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might present the church holy and without blemish. And it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who applies this redemption to us creatures, unholy, and who builds us together into a dwelling place for the Holy God in the Spirit, Paul says. Thus, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, there is an infinite fountain of holiness, of moral beauty and excellence, and so it flows out to us in communicated holiness. This is a beautiful thing because the infinite transcendent holiness of God might drive you away. You might think it's going to drive him away from you. But it does just the opposite. It flows out towards you in communicated holiness. For it's God's purpose that shall not be thwarted. There shall be holy communion between the holy trinity and a holy people. That's the whole Bible. There shall be holy communion between the holy trinity and a holy people. And that brings us to the third point, a holy people. So we have a holy God, we have a holy Redeemer, and then we have a holy people. Because God is this God, this triune God, the Holy One in your midst, He can state His sovereign purpose succinctly. This is from Leviticus 19. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, we heard this in the New Testament lesson. The Apostle Peter echoes this. And Peter writes this. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, there's the holy God, you also shall be holy, there's the holy people, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There it is. Christian ethics in eight words. Okay. 23 letters, if I counted correctly. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And here, we are driven to the cross of Jesus. For that cross is necessitated, right, by the collision the collision between God's infinite flame of holiness and our malignant sinfulness. We have one of the hymns, we often sing it around uh, Good Friday, but we've sing it at other times, of course. It says, the deepest stroke that wounded Christ, the deepest stroke that wounded him was the stroke that justice gave. Charnock says, if it's the stroke that justice gave, it's the stroke that holiness ordered. Holiness ordered the stroke, required it. So holiness is, if you will, secured for us by the flawless obedience of Christ in life and death. We often don't see the need for this or the beauty of it or the exhilaration of Christ's perfect obedience, personal, exact and entire obedience. We don't see it. 
We don't see the splendor of the cross properly because we don't have the backdrop of the flaming fire of God's holiness. Right? This is what you were redeemed with. Precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He has embodied this holiness. And now he is your high priest. And you know what Hebrews says of him as a high priest? He's holy, innocent, unstained, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is holiness in human flesh. Praise God, right, that he did not just say, well, I'm holy and now you've got to be holy. In between you shall be holy for I am holy is Jesus Christ and his cross. Holiness embodied in human flesh. So Paul can summarize the whole Christian life, its whole goal and end, with this in mind. He says something like this. This is Colossians. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Why? Why all of this? Why why this Christian existence? Why the cross? What's the purpose? Well, Paul tells you, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, Before him. We have been chosen, called, redeemed to be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus is not only your righteousness, he is gloriously that, but he is your sanctity. He is your holiness as well, for he's a complete and full savior. And this is a wonderful consolation. Not one of his sheep will fall short of the splendor of the image of God in Jesus Christ. Not one. So the holiness of God is an eminently practical thing. We are to be in earnest about becoming holy. Not so that we can become scolds, but so that we can participate in the splendor of God's own light and life. There's only one tragic thing in life. And it's not suffering, it's not death, it's not disease, it's not defeat. It's to not become a holy one. It's to not be a saint. It will be the only tragedy when you die. Thus we are to purify ourselves as he is pure. This is our singular passion. Right? God himself is our singular passion, but God is our passion so that we might be conformed to God in Jesus Christ. Right? What is the heart? The very heart of Christian prayer is that the name of God would be hallowed. And that petition is above all, first and foremost, a prayer that it be hallowed in us. So we are too, in the language of Hebrews 12, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice notice the word strive, like pursue, chase, run after. And notice the stakes. Without it, holiness, no one will gaze on the splendor of the holy God. The pure in heart, blessed are they, For they alone shall see the Holy One and live. You're going to be able to do something the seraphs, those burning seraphs can't do in Jesus Christ. And you know what that is? 
uncover your eyes and gaze. So, to conclude, because the thrice holy God is our end, the pursuit of God is for us the pursuit of holiness. Paul puts it simply and bluntly this is the will of God for you your sanctification. Your sanctification. He goes on in that same verse, goes on and continues there and says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The sum of Christian ethics, you shall be holy as I am holy. Notice this, I want you to notice the word shall there, because the sum of Christian ethics is in fact a promise. This is not God saying, listen, I'm holy, now you guys be holy. This is God assuring you, promising you of his commitment, saying, you shall be holy because I am holy. This is a promise. God is promising you, all of us, in our twisted alienation, in all of our being bent in on ourselves, in all of our unholiness, it's a promise. It's a promise of everlasting, holy fellowship and glory. You shall indeed be holy. Because the God you serve is holy. Since we have these promises, Paul says, beloved, we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, bringing or perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so we pray the apostolic benediction for ourselves and for each other. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? For at that coming, when he appears, we shall see him as he is, and then we shall join the unending choir of fiery seraphs with unveiled eyes singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen.